Hey, Angela here. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to invite you to join our Substack community, where you'll get more founder profiles, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, first access to all my original work, and access to our community group chat. All you have to do is click the link in the description. I love and appreciate your support. It's awesome to see all your comments, email responses, and reactions. I'm happy to share this journey with you. Thanks for tuning in. In my early teens, I had an eating disorder, had a lot of illness, a lot of early trauma that taught me the incredible link between my health, both emotionally and physically, to what I put in my body. And the, the, you know, the nutritional value of that food, where it came from, how I cooked it, how I prepared it. So I developed that early understanding about myself. And then when I went off to college, I became more politicized about it. And I began to understand, wow, how we treat our land and the earth is very similar to how we treat our body and our wellness at the end of the day is a result. You're listening to Honey and Hustle, a video podcast that inspires the dreamers, creators, and hustlers to make a business from their passions. I'm Angela Hollowell, and I'm a visual storyteller based in Durham, North Carolina. I sit down with creative entrepreneurs, nonprofit founders, and small business owners as they share their stories, the lessons they've learned throughout their careers, and how they've worked to make a positive impact. Hey everyone, today I am joined by Jennifer Curtis, who is one of the co-founders of First Hand Foods, which is a meat distribution company here in Durham, North Carolina. If you guys remember our previous episode, I've spoke with Tallgrass Food Box, who is doing a little bit something different in the agriculture space. First Hand Foods focuses on meat distribution. They have quite a few different channels of distribution to chefs, to consumers, and to wholesalers. I can't wait to dig into how Jennifer and her co-founder got this meat distribution company started and really dig into what is the significance of having a local distribution company sourcing your foods, having that relationship with farmers, and why this type of business model is so needed, not just here, but in other places. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming with me today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. So as I mentioned, Jennifer is incredible. She's awesome. But she also had a co-founder who helped her start this incredible business. Jennifer, can you tell me a little bit about just how firsthand foods got started. Yeah, I have to say that firsthand foods is definitely a group effort. I was working as a consultant to the Center for Environmental Farming Systems about 15 years ago, helping small scale livestock producers tackle the challenges of getting their meats to market. And at that time, there were just a handful of small scale producers willing to sell meat rather than, you know, live animals at an auction barn type of situation. And we were really challenged by our funders. We had some nonprofit foundations funding us to say, look, this is great food, but it's only available at the farmer's market. How are we going to achieve some kind of scale so more people can have access to this local, delicious, pasture-raised meats? And I took that challenge really seriously and said, I don't know. <laughs> How are we going to do that? And I met Tina, my co-founder, while she was halfway through her MBA program at UNC Kenan Flagler. And she grew up in Lumberton, North Carolina, and has deep passion for rural economic development and helping North Carolina's rural economies. And we connected around that passion and my passion for how do we heal the earth and heal our bodies through healthy food. And 
she was my was a consultant to us for a summer. It was a summer internship for her as part of her graduate school work. And for me, she was I was her client asking this question: Is there a business model that we could develop that would help small family farmers in North Carolina who are raising their livestock in a really different way? get their meats to market. And what would that look like? I mean, we explored a lot of different options. And what we decided was that we need, there needed to be a business that would buy the whole animal from the farmer. And this is, gets to the issue of sort of risk sharing across the supply chain. Farmers are often saddled with all of the risk. You know, they're squeezed in conventional supply chains. And we realized if they own the animal and all the production costs and risks of bad weather and climate change and everything, and then they also own the meat, that's a lot of risk. And then, of course, they have to take on the challenges of marketing and distribution, which a lot of farmers don't want to do. They just want to be on their farm, raising their animals in a humane way. And so we knew that the value proposition, what we offered farmers was basically buying their whole animal. And so Tina developed a financial model for us that shows that we could make a little bit of money and start a for-profit business in the middle as an aggregator and buy the whole animal and sell the meat. And so then it was like, okay, who are we going to sell it to? <laughs> so we began, basically we worked together as consultants to the North, to the Center for Environmental Farming Systems at NC State. I was raising the money and she was developing the initial financial model and business plan. And we were kind of shopping it around to different funders and like, what could we, what could we, what could we pilot test here? And so when she graduated in 20, oh gosh, I'm not going to remember so long ago, it was probably 2009. I was like, let me hire her. I'm going to lose her. She's now learned a whole year's worth of it. She's applied her business acumen to this concept of meat and how we take live animals and turn it into products that can support a middle business. So I hired her and we worked together to build out the business plan and we launched the business in 2010. And the way we launched it was, I think, one of the best decisions we ever made. And we had a lot of coaching. We had so much coaching because neither of us had ever started a business before. Like I had no background in business. I had a whole other kind of career in policy advocacy and as a consultant myself working in, in food and agriculture, but not in business. And... um she was fresh out of school. So we had a lot of coaching and I could go into all those folks. But the point was we said, let's start with a brand that we really are excited about. Let's invest in the brand because that's going to carry us through and tell our story for the rest of the time. And I'm so glad we did that because we have such brand loyalty right now. People have known us in Durham for a long time, but we could have just not put a lot of emphasis on the brand, but I think it was a really smart decision. And we started with a food truck. And there were basically just a few food trucks at that time, parlor ice cream and only burger. And we came on the scene with a sausage wagon and parked in front of Full Steam Brewery, which also had just opened. And there we were with our very complimentary brands and people in Durham just went crazy. I mean, our opening night, October 27, 2010, um, we had help from all sorts of folks in Durham to get the word out. And we had 500 people. They went around the block in line to get sausages, four different kinds of sausages. We, we hired our, a chef to work with us to develop those. And um, I'll just never forget that night for the rest of my life. Our farmers came, 
tons of supporters and people just went crazy. And from then on, we've just had this great, solid brand. You know, Twitter was just getting going and it was a way of building brand recognition. But our mission all the time was not just D to C, direct to consumer or having a little restaurant or anything. It was to develop a wholesale business to scale because that's how we were going to help small farmers. We're, you know, if we're just a little tiny thing, we might help a few farmers. But our mission is to help, you know, a network. And we now have about 25 farmers that we work with across the state to source our animals. Nice, nice. So I want to dive a little bit more onto the brand loyalty piece that you kind of talked about, because I think that really does lend itself to the rest of our conversation about firsthand foods as a business. One thing that you mentioned when you first started talking with Tina, your co-founder, was that you guys shared a similar ethos around your relationship with food and understanding and really feeling and truly believing that, you know, when we develop a certain relationship with our food, aka knowing where our food comes from and being intentional about the food that we've put into our body, that has kind of like a healing nature. Can you talk a little bit about how your kind of shared values led to, you know, again, what makes firsthand food so unique? Because again, we're talking about, you know, building a customer base, a customer loyalty base that allows you to grow a wholesale business at scale, right? You threw out some really early names, right? The parlor now has a storefront, right? Full Steam now has multiple locations, right? So you're talking about being in the early 2010s with some other incredible businesses that were also growing and still do have incredible brand loyalty, right? So there's something to be said about the intentionality behind a business and an intentionality in really getting in touch with your community and being the bridge between where their food comes from and the tables that it sits on at night. I did that. You just said that beautifully. I'm not sure how I can improve on it, but let me, I can make it personal. You know, I think we intentionally chose Durham. We could, I actually live in Carborough. I spent a lot of time in Durham because our warehouse is there, but we picked Durham as a place to start because we knew we would find customers who shared our values. We just, you know, it was early in the local food movement, but we could just feel it. And I think the personal connection to me, I love what you said about healing because that's fundamentally what drives me and has driven me my whole career. And I think personal for me in that, in my early teens, I, I had an eating disorder, had a lot of illness, a lot of early trauma that taught me the incredible link between my health, both emotionally and physically to what I put in my body and the, the, you know, the nutritional value of that food, where it came from, how I cooked it, how I prepared it. So I, I developed that early understanding about myself. And then when I went off to college, I became more politicized about it. And I began to understand, wow, how we treat our land and the earth is very similar to how we treat our body and our wellness at the end of the day is a result, not just if we do individually with our own bodies, but how we treat the earth. And so to me, agriculture and food became this incredibly important, almost spiritual connection to doing all of that healing. Like if we don't figure out how to have, to grow our food in a way that is truly sustainable, that sustains and nourishes our bodies, that sustains and nourishes the farmers who are taking the risks and healing the land through the way that they grow their food, 
that produces good air and water quality for surrounding communities that treats animals humanely. Like these are deeply held values for Tina and I that I know so many people in Durham and the Triangle beyond. I just feel like all of us intuitively know that the food we're putting on our bodies is deeply connected to our own health and how we treat the land. And so for me, you know, early on in my career, I was a policy advocate. I wanted to change the world through changing policy. And I still do. I would love the farm bill to actually support small-scale farmers and Black farmers and all the people that have been disenfranchised from our system for centuries. I want that change desperately. But it began to be apparent to me that the way I like to work in partnership with people, in partnership with farmers, not at crossroads, you know, not fighting, but, you know, I'm just that, that kind of person. I want to be in partnership with everybody if I can. Doesn't always work, but that business was the way to do it. I mean, I, to take a risk with these farmers, not to sit around and talk about, you know, here's a better way to do it. Here's a fact sheet on how a better way to grow your meat, but to actually say, I will pay you more. I will buy your animals. And I will be in a long-term relationship with you to build out this market and this opportunity. And that was something I didn't, I realized I had to make a decision 13 years ago when we went into business. Am I going to continue down the policy road? Because there's so much awesome, exciting work being done in North Carolina by all sorts of nonprofit organizations, CFSA, the Center for Environmental Farming Systems that I mentioned, RAFI, like just great, awesome organizations trying to build a better food system here in North Carolina and beyond. I could do that. I'm really passionate about it. Or am I going to go into business and have this authentic relationship, partnership with farmers and everyone else in our supply chain? And that's obviously what I chose to do. And Tina brought, what she brought was the business acumen and the ability to make sure we didn't lose our shirts in that process because it's a very high standard to meet. I mean, most food is produced in a way that's really exploitative and it doesn't pay farmers well, doesn't support the supply chain in the way it needs to be, doesn't treat our earth the way it should be, and doesn't end up producing healthy food. I mean, we're, you know, sorry, we're killing ourselves with high fructose corn syrup and all the things, you know? So to produce just like real simple foods in a way that nourishes the earth and doesn't exploit farmers, like that ends up being a radical act. It shouldn't be. It should just be what we do. But in fact, it, to me, when I just start talking about it, I get all riled up again. Like it's, it's revolutionary. <laughs> so all the folks out there in Durham and the Triangle trying to build these new ways of getting food to market and making it transparent, and visible. This is where your food's coming from. These are the people who are raising it. This is what they struggle with. This is how you can support them. I mean, to me, that's what we're all about. And, and we have so many customers who share that too. They don't have the time to do what we do. So that's why we have a business proposition. You know, that's why there's a role for us. A lot of people trash middle businesses, but, you know, you, we spend a lot of time with the logistics and the, using the whole animal. That's a whole thing that people don't understand that really sets us apart is that we buy that whole animal from the farmer. We end up selling 200 different products just to utilize, you know, from snap to tail. And all our customers help us do that. So we're, looking for customers who understand the need to move the whole animal. And that's what's really been great over the last 10 years is we've seen chefs especially completely take on that challenge and um, they're a critical part of how we make things work. But also small-scale grocery stores like Weaver Street Market, they're an awesome customer and they get it. 
I totally understand what it takes to support the local meat supply chain. So at the end of the day, I can't remember your original question, but you know, to me, what we're building and what so many of these other businesses that you're interviewing are building is an incredibly valuable asset for us locally. I mean, look at the pandemic and all the supply chain disruptions. Yeah, we had to pivot like everyone else, but we were here. Our farmers were here, processors were here, and we, you know, we got food out the door. And I think we all need to continue to invest in these local regional assets for the future. Yeah, no, that definitely 1000% answered my question. So one thing that I saw on your website was this quote from a farmer. And he said, finally, someone listens to us, like truly freaking listens to us. And when you talk about, you know, I want to be in relationship with people, I want to be in partnership with people, you know, and this business was my way of authentically and genuinely doing that. And really just showing solidarity with farmers and saying, like, I'm in it with you, you know, I'm here in the trenches with you, figuring out how to make this work. Um, Listening is just such an underrated skill, right? And I think when people hear listening, what they hear is like, I'm listening to respond. I'm listening to find a solution for you. I'm listening to do what I feel is best based on what you have told me not listening to what you feel is best and listening to the direction you want to take this in, right? Because that definitely impacts the work that you're doing. And at both ends of the both ends of the scale, you know, from the farmers to the different distribution methods that you have talked about that we're going to dive into a little bit. But, you know, when you started hearing this kind of feedback from farmers, like, oh, wow, like they're really listening. How was that for you in terms of a confidence builder, a business builder, and really in terms of shaping the success that First Hand Foods now has? Yeah, good question. I think early on in the business, I would say the first five years of business, we had a real emphasis on building our producer network, listening and understanding and learning how our animals raised. What does it mean to do it differently? You know, our beef farmers typically in North Carolina will sell a calf when it's a year old to some distant market and ends up out west on the feedlot. Well, let, what are the challenges they face to keep that animal a whole other year and graze it and feed it until it's harvestable wheat and sell it to us? What's the risk they're taking? What's the additional financial remuneration they need to make that worth their while? It has to make business sense for them and for us always. And so that's the bottom line. It's a good grounding principle, you know, just has to be a win-win for both parties. So we're looking for that win-win all the time. And so we really emphasize building that network. I wish we could keep building it, but right now we really need to stay loyal to the initial farmers that came on board and believed in us. And they still have growth available to them with their own herds of animals. And so we're sticking loyal. I hope as we scale, we can add a few more farmers. That would be a joy to me. But right now we're we've sort of transitioned from building that network to really focusing on sales and how do we build a a team that can help us scale and go into new markets and that kind of thing. But some of the unique things that we do to build that network that I think are in sharp contrast to the relationship producers have in traditional supply chains, which are very transactional, I think one is, it's interesting to me, I had no idea this would be so important, but 
if you raise an animal and you sell it as a commodity, which is the norm, you have no idea how that meat actually tastes, how it looks. Was it good? Because you sold it to somebody, sold it to somebody, sold it to somebody, and then you have no idea where it ends up. So we buy, you know, each week one farm in case of beef will deliver us, say, five beef cattle. They don't deliver the cattle to us. They deliver them to a slaughter plant that we work with, specifically Chaudhry's Halal Meats in Cyber City, does our beef and lamb. And as I said, it's halal in case people are curious about that. It is. And they, they process, you know, they fabricate everything and we bring back the meat to sell. We grab a ribeye off of each batch of those cattle and we share that. We, we grade it as to its marbling. We taste it and we give that feedback to the farmer. And that has been as valuable to them as getting paid a premium price. They, they're proud of the work they do and they don't get feedback in a traditional system. So just being in relationship to like, we care about their product and we give them feedback and it's actually helped them improve their genetics. So they'll be able to make decisions like, I'm going to get rid of that bull because it's, it's not the best genetics, you know? And so over time, our beef quality has improved because we're in this relationship together. And we need it to be the best quality for our chefs. They're very demanding, as they should be. They want the best quality. Locals should always taste delicious and be amazing, right? We don't sacrifice that. Trust me, early on in the local food movement, a lot of chefs viewed uh, grass-fed beef, any beef coming off a local farm is inferior. And I think we've changed that. We've absolutely changed that narrative. Um, so, yeah, it's this continuous improvement together. We also have an annual meeting with our producers where we, you know, we have a big dinner. We share our financials in a fairly open book way so they understand what we're about. And to be honest, like the farmers in our network, it changes each year, but they get about 50% of the revenues we bring in, which is really different than in, in a traditional. The processors get another 25%. So you can see what we get. It's gross. So, you know, last year we, there's like a 1.2 million dollars went back to the livestock producers and in our network so it's it's not a small chunk of change <laughs> going back to support these communities that um but yeah i'm just trying to give you some examples of how that relationship manifests and what we try to do to cultivate it we also have a part-time in the case of beef network coordinator who is working with us on the scheduling and the logistics and can answer their questions so you know it's part of our the value we add as an aggregator is having that attention on the relationship and making sure it goes smoothly and all that. This episode was recorded using Riverside. Riverside is an incredible video recording and live streaming tool for video podcasters and video creators. With the ability to record videos up to 4K resolution, all participants have access to active local backups which make poor internet connections and lagging audio a thing of the past. If you're ready to upgrade the audio and video quality of your show, please be sure to check out the link in the description to experience Riverside for yourself. Now, back to the show. Nice. I mean, like, that is powerful to know that you guys are really being transparent with the farmers from end to end. So not only, like, here's the type of relationship we want to have to, you know, Here's how much we're giving you in a year to here's the quality of your beef that you're giving us. And here's, you know, maybe some things you can think about to improve it over time. Like that is crazy. Almost just like internal feedback 
that you've created that they just have not had, right? They had right. probably no idea how much they were making in in relation to maybe another uh, buyer's, you know, total revenue. They probably had no idea what their end product was, maybe if they weren't selling locally previous to now. And now they have this this whole other thing where they can like really understand their impact that they're having, really understand how far their beef is going or lamb or pork, whatever it may be. And then also like how they can continually improve, you know, and raise their cattle. One thing I really truly believe about farm work, which is continually devalued in this country is that, you know, the farmers really do love what they do. They love and care for those animals. And I think like that is maybe a misconception that has been popularized in popular culture as people see these like horror stories on reality TV about like how pigs are raised and cows are raised and chickens are raised. And that's just not even like, yes, it happens, but it's not like probably the case for your local farmer, right? They probably have a much more, much different relationship with the food that they grow. Um, First Hand Foods is a B Corps certified organization. And I think that also lends itself to a lot of what you're talking about in terms of how highly you guys really regard the food that you put out. Like for you guys to even offer a feedback process says says a lot about how much you care about what's going on people's plates. And I really would love to dig into why you guys, I think that like lends itself to your values, why you guys decided want to become a B Corps certified organization in an industry like meat, when people probably don't associate those two things together. Um, <laughs> oh, that's exactly where I wanted to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how that, how that has kind of gone over. I think like, I don't want to call any names, but there is a fairly well-known restaurant business here in North Carolina that owns some, some farms that have been, you know, uh, unceremoniously sued by the EPA multiple times. So we're trying to avoid that clearly <laughs> by doing a little bit of a better job and and making sure that, you know, we are taking care of the planet as we grow this, you know, meat distribution and aggregation and, you know, also make sure that the people that work for these companies are are treating their employees well and treating, right. you know, each other well. So yeah, yeah, we're thrilled to be B Corp. It's a new thing for us. We just got certified last year. We wanted to do it at various stages of the company, but we really didn't have the bandwidth to get through the certification process till recently because it's it's not a small undertaking. Uh, and we haven't even gotten the B Corp logo onto our products yet. You know, we have to run through, we have to get that approved by USDA and then, and that's in process. And then once that's done, work through our existing labels. So it'll probably be like, I swear, like in the three or four months before you'll see the B Corp insignia on our actual products, but it's all over our website. And it's funny, March is B Corp month. So this is perfect time to talk about it. But ultimately, you know, the B Corp certification is our, is a third party certification that demonstrates our commitment to creating positive impacts on society and the environment. And we wanted to get certified exactly what you said, which is like, we have this way of doing business in meat that's so radically different than conventional meat distribution and supply chains and all those relationships. Let's let's make sure people in a really quick way when they see that little B Corp understand that we are committed to all these things. So we felt like we, I mean, I'll just be humble or not humble and say like, we thought, well, we'll score super high because of all the things we already do. But actually we got into it and realized there were some areas of improvement for us as well. So it's been helping us, especially like internally. We haven't had as much time, you know, when you're an entrepreneur 
we were in startup mode for a really long time and you're just trying to get all the wheels on the bus working. And in the last couple of years, three or four years, we've really been able to put more systems in place and offer our employees really good benefits. But that's like new as of last year. So B Corp is helping us, you know, guide how we improve in our governance of our company and how we treat our employees and what we're able to offer them and just to consider that as we grow and not, you know, make sure that we can cover those things before we tackle, say, a new geography or add a new salesperson. Let's make sure we can pay our existing people well and offer them some benefits. You know, like you have to think about these things. You can't do it all at once. So, yeah. And then also it just bakes that commitment as long as you stay certified into the DNA of the business. And so it's not like we would be inclined to say, it's also saying we're not going to sell this business and this brand to another company that doesn't care about these things. It's sort of like long-term integrity to me. It communicates that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think long-term sustainability is is what we're after here in every yeah. business, right? So one last question, and I think this is a beautiful note to end on, which is, you know, First End Foods now distributes to chefs, small wholesalers like Weaver Street Market, and has some direct-to-consumer stuff going on. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that distribution network kind of came to be a part of your business model? Yeah. Well, as I said, while we started as a food truck, our initial vision and our business plan was to become a wholesaler. You know, how do we set a price that other people can, that we can pay our farmers fairly and other sellers can make money on our product? So we started with restaurants because we felt that was the biggest demand. I mean, so many chefs were saying, I want local meat, but I don't have the time to go to the farmer's market and get it. And also when I do develop a relationship with an individual farmer, they only have enough for me for two months out of the year. What do I do the rest of the time? I need to have this on my menu all the time. And also I need it fresh every week. I don't like frozen meat. And so that requires a certain kind of scale. And so we, we are very grateful to Seth Gross at Bull City Burger and Brewery because he was our first beef wholesale customer. And he said, I will buy all the trim. If you, if you have a, imagine a, well, you start out with 1300 pound beef animal, huge animal. By the time you get the, down to carcass weight, it might weigh like 750 pounds. And 300 pounds of that is going to be stuff that's going to just need to be ground up into burgers. So anytime you buy a beef animal, you have to, you're going to have 20 ribeyes and 300 pounds of ground beef. You know how many patties that is? You know, so you get these things in odd ratios when you buy whole animals. So we needed a partner who understood that. And he did. And he said, I'll buy all your trim and I'll buy all the cuts that I can grind with my make proprietary blend. He's been with us now for, for, uh, well, I think 12 years. And so he's like this keystone partner around the beef. And then we could find customer for ribeyes. But only one at the time because we were only buying like one beef a week. And so then you have 20 ribeyes and that's barely enough for most restaurants, you know? Um, so we had to grow it in this. It's kind of lumpy how we grow. And pork is an easier situation. We, we are actually buying about 25 hogs a week now and we're quite at scale. We also sell whole barbecue hogs to places like Longleaf Swine and Raleigh and picnic in Durham. So those folks are super dedicated to local and they do whole hog barbecue. We love them. So that's another way we've grown. 
So the restaurants were our bread and butter early on, and it was a really cha- a big challenge to, as I said, use that whole animal and find a home for all the parts. But I mean, like Toro, Pizzeria Toro, buy the pig ears. No one else would. And they make this awesome appetizer with it. And it's like, thank you, because, you know, we need to make that $2 on those pig ears because it's part of the profit and how we make enough money to pay our farmers well. Um, so as we grew in 2015 is when we actually took on retail. I think initially, honestly, with the grocery, when I say retail, I mean selling to a grocery store. It's going to put our product on the shelf. And we were, we had a lot of concerns that maybe packaging wouldn't be, you know, as up to snuff because our local processors, you know, they're limited in the kinds of machines they have and everything like that. But it turns out people didn't care. They just want the local meat. And so our first retail customer was in Durham Co-op Market, and they've been with us now for eight years. They're amazing. And they now buy whole animals from us. And they have an amazing butcher, Chris Stevens who will make any kind of meat you want, but it's all local pasture-raised, beef and lamb's halal. So if you live in Durham, definitely check them out because he just does amazing things. So we added the Durham Co-op Market, the Weaver Street, Steep Roots Market in Greensboro, and some other places around. And then we also added universities. So UNC Chapel Hill and Duke University, we got both. We don't have to pick. Both buy from us because of the students' interest in sustainable sourcing. And those are great customers because they buy in bulk. Like I said, we got a lot of ground beef and a lot of sausage to sell. So they really help us out there. But also caterers. And in the pandemic, what came on board were these home delivery businesses like the Produce Box, Papa Spuds, Mother Earth Foods in Asheville, Fresh List in Charlotte. These are folks that are aggregating local fresh produce, adding some meat, delivering it to your doorstop. Really popular the pandemic and it continues to be a viable business. And so we're, we love working with those folks because we don't have the capacity to build out home delivery. And then this year, we're really making a commitment. I think we're really seeing people want to get meat directly from us. And while we're not really set up to do it uh, in any kind of way, like we don't have a retail shop, we are offering meat online that you can buy and combine at our warehouse anytime. It's typically bundled, so we're encouraging folks to buy in bulk. We don't really want a lot of people to stop and buy just to pick up two ribeyes for dinner. Like, that doesn't work. You should go to the Durham Co-op. But if you have a freezer and you want to stock up, um, we have some great offerings. And just go to our website and you'll find your way there. And we'll be there to meet you at the door with your delivery or with your order. So definitely what I want everyone to do if they care about getting their meat from us or from any of our customers to sign up for our newsletter because we send it out two times a month and it tells you when we're having a big flash sale and you can save some money on meat, educate you about our farmers and what's up with them, tells you about some of our customers, just and also answer cooking tips about how to cook meat. A lot of people care about local meat. We have a lot of ex-vegetarians who are like, finally, a place I can get meat that feels good, but I don't know how to cook it. So we're trying to help that in that area too. Yeah. So I guess I told a lie unwillingly because I said that was going to be my last question. Oh. But you brought up the recipes and now yeah. I have to ask. So okay. like, <laughs> right? Like you have to know, like, you know yeah. what I mean? If you're like, especially let's say you maybe like started learning about this over the pandemic and you're like, oh, I can get sustainably sourced meat at the house. I want to try to learn a few recipes. I have a little more time. I'm spending more time with my family. Or just by yourself, like myself, and you want to learn how to cook different things better. 
<laughs> how how have the recipes come about? Obviously, you guys work with chefs all the time, so you like feature recipes from them. But the recipes, like how have they come about and how have they really helped to educate people on how like to use local meats in their everyday lives? Um, well, actually, we realized that this was a need about five years ago and we partnered with Stacy's Friends, who was our brand ambassador, photographer and ex- recipe developer extraordinaire. She's a Durham resident, has a great photography business. All our photos, for the most part, are from her and our farmers and our food. She just does a great job. So we said, let's let's take our basic cuts and develop some recipes. So we have a bunch online. Like if you just Google, I mean, we basically have a blog and it's recipes and other issues. So there's a bunch you can find there. But I'd like to tell people a few cooking tips that are not necessarily out there in the mainstream media that I've learned because I was a vegetarian for many years. Not so much because... I didn't want to eat meat. I couldn't afford it at one time. You know, it's expensive. And uh, I would eat it out when my parents came to town and took me out to dinner. But also, um, I just didn't know how to cook it. It kind of intimidated me. And so over the course of being a mom and, you know, having a family, I, I decided to try to figure it out. And I've gotten way more comfortable. You know, when you do something a thousand times, you're just much more comfortable with it. But it was, it was not. It's so easy. But one thing is get your meat. Let's say you want to grill a steak or a pork chop on a stovetop. Get it to room temperature before you actually cook it. This is like people are scared to do that. They're afraid microbes are going to grow. They're not. Because when you're basically just ensuring that you're going to cook it at an even temperature and it's not going to be overcooked when you do it. So I like to advise that. And one other thing you can do to make your pork turn out great all the time is brine it and just salt water for like salt and water you can find any recipe for a few hours and it'll absorb a little bit of the salt and then it'll retain some of the moisture and that's what restaurants all do they're brining their pork and their chicken constantly you don't know it you just think it's chicken but it's a nice little trick you can do so we we just are trying to get more of that information out there to consumers and so i understand it's kind of a challenge sometimes to figure out how to because it's expensive and you want it to turn out right you know if you overcook it or whatever, but we have tons of ideas on our website. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think like, again, when we talk about like untapped markets, there are a lot of ex-vegans and I have heard from people like, yeah, I just naturally went vegan over the pandemic because I didn't know how to cook meat. And if I can't go out and get it, then like I need to figure out how to eat other things. And so they just focused on vegetarian meals or vegan type meals that they could consume fairly quickly and easily. And again, it does go back to, you know, with meat and just even seafood too you know if you're getting something that's fresh it's likely going to be more expensive than like the frozen pack of tyson chicken right and so if you're paying that much for a good quality cut of meat you want it done right and you want to be able to do it right and so i think that's just like the hook line and sinker for you know your distribution is also making sure that people come back satisfied and excited to try something new and to continue buying from you guys or your retailers and, and things like that one thing yeah. I'll say is you cannot go wrong with a ground product like um, ground pork and sautéed vegetables and some kind of Asian sauce, like winter every time. Sheet pan vegetables with a few of our sausage links on top, 30 minutes in the oven, delish. You know, like just really simple. That's the kind of stuff I do. I don't get too fancy, you know. That's funny. That's hilarious. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing. 
with me today. I really appreciate, you know, everything we've talked about and I'm so happy you were able to join me. Thank you so much.